you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn uh, with me to, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1 uh, initially. And we're going to be moving around, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to move around, look at a lot of different verses. This, this I have really benefited from studying this series, and I hope you are benefiting from being taught. Uh, but it's hard because it's a topical uh, you can't just find one single passage, and so creating an outline and, and working through the passages. And Anyway, I appreciate your prayers during the week to uh, uh, be guided in this. But here's what we want to begin with. We've been asking ascension questions, and so last week we asked the question of um, where did Jesus go in the ascension? And the answer was he went back home to heaven to glory. He was glorified. We looked at the glorification. And really, this is what the early church sang and sung uh, as a part of their worship. Listen again to 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then they ended with this, taken up in glory. So the glorification that we saw last week's big deal. Today's question, the ascension question, is this. What did Jesus do in his glorification? Hey, Father, here I am. Yes, you are glorified. I will glorify you. What did he then do? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the Father's throne. And so this, we're progressing, okay? We've seen, we've heard so often, so much about the resurrection. The resurrection secured Jesus' exaltation. But the ascension raises the resurrection into heaven, all right? The glorification of the ascension means that for the first time, there is a man in glory. But now we come to the session where the glorified man sits at the Father's right hand with all authority in heaven and on earth. His session, in his session, he's exalted to the highest place in heaven, even to the very right hand of God. So where's this session come from? What's this mean? Let's look at it. The source of session is a Latin word, sessio. It means sitting. Okay, so it comes from the Latin word sessio, and it simply means sitting. As one theologian put it, the ascension is the entry into a state of glory that Christ obtains in heaven. And that is described with the term sitting at the right hand of God. So what's the significance What's the significance of his session, this heavenly session? It can really be summed up very easy. Jesus rules. Jesus rules. He rules over all in heaven. Another way of saying that, the session means Jesus is second to none. There's no one higher, no one greater no one above him, he is over all. And that's why I want you in Ephesians 1. So let's look at Ephesians 1, and let's look at verses 19 through 23. There in your Bibles. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. And what does that mean? It's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the significance of the session, of the sitting of Christ. As one uh, author put it, the ascended Jesus is the reigning Jesus. 
And I love this hymn by Christopher Wordsworth. Uh, it's entitled, See the Conqueror Mounts in Triumph, See the King in Royal State. Listen to this, his, this stanza. You have raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. There we'll sit in heavenly places. There with you in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in your ascension, we by faith behold our own. Man with God is on the throne. That's the idea. Now, look in your notes. I have the scriptures on the heavenly session. This is all that I've had to work through. Uh, it's progressive. It's progressively revealed and it's pervasively Revealed throughout Scripture. So turn with me. It's predicted in Psalms 110. So turn back to Psalms 110. I'm just trying to, before we get into, you know, trying to explain what this means, I want you to see it in Scripture. Psalm 110 is one of the greatest Psalms in all the book of Psalms. And it is the Psalm that is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other. Okay, this is the most quoted Psalm. Knows what it says. The Lord, all caps, Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, and this is David speaking, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. He will have a mighty, youthful, willing army. The Lord is sworn I will not and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, and he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So here we have a mighty king priest seated at the right hand. This was predicted. Then you go to the Gospels, and Jesus himself promises that he himself will fulfill this, that he is the one David is talking about. We won't look at those references, but basically he quotes this and says, I'm that guy, I'm this person who's going to sit. And then it was preached by Peter in the book of Acts. So turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Let's read verses 22, 22 through 36. Here he's preaching. On the day of Pentecost, Christ has ascended, the Spirit has come down, and, and he wants to explain what is happening. So take a look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And then comes those two beautiful words, but God, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence. Then he says this, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's still buried. And so because he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat 
one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are witnesses. Therefore, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of his Holy Spirit, he poured out forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, and then he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you for your feet. Then he draws the application. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord and Christ. Why? Because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So it's preached. And then it's practiced throughout the epistles. I gave you all the verses that that directly reference it. But it's also promised to us in the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation 3.21. Now, listen to this. We've been talking about Jesus seated. Here's what Jesus, in Revelation 3.21, the risen, ascended, exalted Lord, says this. He who overcomes... I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So as Jesus is in heaven seated at the right hand of the father, he says, I overcame and this is my reward. Guess what? If you overcome, you get to sit next to me and I'm sitting next to the father And you get to enjoy what I am enjoying. So there's a promise there. Well, there's there's an ocean of information about this session. So I'm going to give you a thimble. Everybody got your little thimble? We're going to take the thimble and we're going to dip it into the ocean of the session of God. And we're going to answer five basic questions. So here's five basic questions about the session. The first question is this. What does Jesus do in the session? And by now you should know the answer to that. What does he do in the session? He sits. He sits down. He sits down in the session. Now, what's the significance of that? The first thing, I mean, I would think, and maybe you think too, is, is it literal? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? Is he immovable? You know, I mean, you sit here and don't you get out of your seat. Is that what the father has done with the son? Well, in one sense, yeah, he is sitting. He can sit. Why do we know he can sit? Because what? Because he's sitting. Well, why do we know that Jesus, the ascended Christ can sit? Oh, Lord, I don't want to have to go back to the whole series. Because he has a body, yes, because he has a body. He can sit. And we know in heaven, however mysterious and spiritual heaven is, uh, even the tabernacle and the, and the temple that was built was designed based on the heavenly tabernacle. So there's something there, and there's physicality there. And so, yes, in, in, in one sense, he is sitting. In a greater sense, though... It's mysterious, and we don't quite know how to explain it. He has a glorified body, but it's more than a human body. It's more than a resurrected body. It's a glorified body. And remember, we talked about last week, it's the same body, and yet it's what? Different, because it's glorified. So, but, and what we want to understand too, though, while he can sit, On a throne in heaven, he's not glued to the chair to where he never gets up. How do we know that? Well, Stephen, the first martyr of the church in Acts 7, as he's being stoned and about to enter into heaven in the presence of God, he looks up and he sees Jesus doing what? Standing. He's standing. And then the apostle John 
who is in exile on the island of Patmos on the Lord's day is having his worship alone on the exile on the island. That's how much of a priority Sunday worship was for the Apostle John. He has a vision and he sees Jesus walking among the candlesticks, which were the local churches. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment and say, isn't it interesting that these two men had the privilege of seeing the ascended Lord in visions in the midst of tremendous suffering. So it's a reminder that though our Lord is over everything, that doesn't mean we have a health and wealth gospel where we never suffer. In fact, in their suffering, they were given hope and encouragement to see the ascended Lord. Now, here's what's interesting. The sitting of Jesus pictures his royal glory. Jesus didn't enter heaven and have to stand. Do you realize basically everybody in heaven standing? The angels stand in worship around the throne. Why? Because God Almighty sits as the sovereign and as his servants, they're always standing ready with their ears, quick to hear, quick to obey. Jesus isn't standing like a servant, like an angel. And you go to Revelation and all the nations are gathered around the throne. And what are they doing? They're standing in honor and awe. But the Son of God, the Son of Man, glorified, enters into heaven. And he doesn't have to beg. He doesn't have to bow down. He just walks right up and what? Sits down in royal glory. Let me tell you, when we go to heaven, we're not going to just walk in and say, Hey, you know, pull up. But you ever had somebody pull up their chair and just kind of like invade your space? Yeah, you know, we're not going to go up to God and say, hey, uh, you know, let me pull my my chair here up to your right hand and just sit down and let's have a chat about all those questions. I've always wondered about the Bible. That ain't how heaven's going to be. Jesus is there in his royal glory. And here's the thing. The reason he can do that is because he earned the right. And he was granted the right as a reward. So let's look at two things under this point. The father sits the glorified son of Adam down. The father sits him down. This is an honor that only God can give to a human being. Acts 2.30 says an oath. He, God swore an oath to seat one of his descendants. On his throne. Ephesians 1.20 said that when he raised him from the dead, he seated him. The father said, you have earned this right. This is your reward for your, heaven, for your earthly ministry. But the glorified son of God sits himself down. So he's not just sat down. He seats, sits himself down. Why? Because he's deity. In his humanity, the father had to sit him. The father uh, was the only one that could give him the right to sit there. But in his deity, he took that right because it was his. Does this make sense? Same way he was risen, the father raised him, and yet the son raised himself. Even says the spirit raised him. In the ascension, the father took him up. But he also went up of his own accord. So we see the God-man, fully man, fully deity. And it's interesting in Hebrews uh, 1.3, it says he sat down. In Hebrews 8.1, it says who has taken his seat at the right hand. Hebrews 10.12, he sat down. The ascended man of God has earned the right to sit there, and it was granted to him by the Father, but he also has the right to sit there as the Son of God. So that's the first question. What did he do? Second question, where does Jesus sit in the session? Where does he sit? And what's the answer? At God's right hand. At God's right hand. Notice in your notes, I, I gave you all the references it's, it's, Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the throne of God, the right hand of power, the right hand of the majesty on high, and the right high hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. 
Now, what does the right hand picture? Well, I could give you 15 things that it pictures. And we're going to eventually cover those in different ways. But for right now, I just want to give you four pictures of the right hand of God. This is the significance of the right hand of God. And it pictures, first of all, a place of presence. It's probably the most important one. The right hand of God is a place of proximity to God himself. It's access for a relationship. Can you imagine coming up alongside and sitting at the right hand of God Almighty to where you can ask him? You can fellowship with him. You can interact with him. It's what a privilege, right? You know, you go the the most important people at a, a at a sporting event get what? The best seats. Those are not the seats I get, okay? I'm in the highest nosebleed sections. I'm farthest away. And then you see the important people on the jumbotron, right? The celebrity pictures, right? Well, you're always thinking, what would it be like to sit next to that person? Well, maybe not Jack Nicholson. I don't know. But I don't know who you'd want to sit next to. But for being a human being, sitting next to God Almighty on his throne is the closest you could ever get to the very presence of God. What a privilege. All right. Made me think of what, what kind of how could I, you know, how would I illustrate that? Well, it'd be like Clark Hunt calling me up and saying, Chris, I want you to come sit next to me in my suite as we watch the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. Now, would that just not be awesome? I'd be like, Clark, what do you think? Clark, why is Andy doing that? Clark. Is, is Mahomes' ankle okay? What is going I mean, it would, be, it would just be cool, and you get all that. That's the closest. I also thought about Amber and I in the presence of Guy Fieri as he uh, was at Smoking Guns. And let's have a moment of silence. Smoking Guns is gone. It no longer exists. But uh, we were right there with him in his car. But he had the flu, so it wasn't the greatest experience. But anyway, all these people, they're just people, right? And none of it's permanent. But think of sitting at the right hand of the Father. You'd have to be God to have that privilege. And Jesus is God, the presence of God, access for a relationship. Secondly, the right hand is a place of power. We already saw that in uh, one of the references there that Jesus would sit at the right hand of power. It's authority for ruling. God's right hand. Think The right hand, typically, how many lefties do we have here besides my wife? All right, so we got yeah, three, four exceptions to the mighty rule, okay? The right hand is the strong. It's the power. Yes, it is. It's the right hand. It's the right hand. And that's why you want to sit on the right. Now, the next best thing, sorry, lefties, is to sit on the left. But the best, the power to rule. And throughout Scripture, God, it says, God's mighty right hand is what delivered Israel out of Egypt. God's mighty right hand is what delivered judgment on God's enemies. Look again at Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. That's all about power. Look at Ephesians 1.20. It says, The power of God raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand. And what kind of power are we talking about? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name. When they say every name is when you speak a name, certain names open up doors. Certain names can bring condemnation. Certain names can bring salvation. His name, his power is above every power on earth. So in other words, the seated son of God, the seated man of God at the right hand, he's large and in charge, but he's also near to hear and he's close enough to care for saved people and to convert unsaved people. That's what his power is able to do. Listen, as uh, one theologian put it this way 
a continuing incarnation enthrones Jesus in direct relationship to the world and its ruler. There is a real human king who reigns over all the world from heaven. A man, think about this, a man who once walked among us is on the throne and he is not aloof from the affairs of his realm below. All other powers on earth, therefore, are merely temporary and derived. We have a, a God-man sitting at the right hand of God who has walked as we walked, who was birthed as we birth, were birthed. Well, not exactly, but you know. And he wept. And he laughed and he cried and he hungered and he thirsted and he was tempted. And now he sits enthroned with all authority and power. That is good news, folks. Thirdly, it's a place of privilege. Activity for representing. It's a place of privilege. We'll talk more about this in this series. Uh, but realize this, Jesus is seated as the one and only mediator between man and God. He is the ruling representative of God Almighty. So what's that mean? That means that if you're going to get to God, you have to go through who? Yeah, he's the representative. Who's the face of God toward the universe? Jesus Who's the embodiment of his kingdom? It's Jesus sitting right there at his right hand. He is the representative, not Mary. Mary's not sitting at the right hand. It's not the Pope. It's not the saints. They're standing in worship. Jesus is the one sitting at the right hand. It's not Buddha. It's not Mohammed. He is the representative. And he is actively representing God's interests from the right hand. Fourthly, it's a place of pleasure. Acceptance for rejoicing. Listen, this is just a beautiful... I want you to look at it. Turn your Bibles to Psalm, uh, to Psalm 16, 10 through 11. I know we're getting some heavy theology here, but it's practical. But it's also joyful. It should be joyful. Look at Psalm 16, 10 through 11. The right hand is a place of acceptance. Come, enter into my joy. Sit down here and let's enjoy one another. Psalm 16, 10 through 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Peter quoted that. In that sermon in Pentecost, applied it to Jesus. But look at verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of what? Joy. In your right hand, there are what? Pleasures forever. It's a joyful place to be. And that's where he's at. Now, man, there's so, there's, there's so much... Here, those four pictures that I just gave you really reflect the image of God in man. Man was created for relationship, for ruling, for representing, and having rejoicing in that relationship with God. But we, our image, we were created in the image to enjoy those things. But sadly, we rebelled against that. Christ came and fully obeyed. He is the very image of God. He's enjoying what humanity was created for. We were to sit next to God, ruling over his creation. And Jesus is doing that. But here's the kicker. All of this is ours because of our union with Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I told you, it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, and look at verses 4 through 9. Beloved, I, what was your week like this week? Ordinary? Maybe bad? Maybe not so good? 
If you are a believer this morning, this is you this morning. Look at verse 4. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, there's those two words again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And Paul just can't stop. He has to stop and just say, by grace you have been saved. But it's not just saved, not just forgiven, and raised us up with Him and did what? Seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are seated with Him at the right hand. That means that that place of of relationship is ours in Christ. That place of, of, of representation, that's ours in Christ. That place of ruling, that's ours in Christ. That place of pleasure and rejoicing, that's ours in Christ. And every morning you ought to wake up, look up, lay in bed, look up and say, I am in the heavenlies with Christ. Yeah, maybe it might change your life. I don't know. I think it could. Okay? For, third question. Why does Jesus sit in, the, in his session? Why does he sit? And the answer is to conduct kingdom business. Why does he sit? Is he tired? Okay. Is he a couch potato? Why is he there? Well, get your little thimble back out because we're just going <laughs> to... We're not going to cover all of it of why he sits. That's really what the whole series is about. But let's look, first of all, his work of redemption on earth is finished. Zach Werner is a dad's dad and proud of it. And he's a lawn care man. Am I right? Yes. And after you cut your grass, you take pictures. You post them, but then what do you do? You go inside and sit down, if you can. After a shower on the After, you have to shower first. Oh, I just get, I get a bath towel out and I throw it on. It's like I just need to sit. You sit because your work is done. Your work is done. He is sitting because the work of redemption has been completed. Amen. Listen to Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Because his earthly work of redemption was completed. Jesus is not up there performing sacrifices for our sins. Jesus is not running around trying to figure out what to do with us down here who are still sinning. Or the rebels who are rebelling. He has completed that work. And he sits. And he waits. Secondly, he sits though also because his work of ruling in heaven has begun. So in one sense, yes, his work is finished and he sits. His earthly redemption. But in another sense, his heavenly ministry that we've been talking about, his Work of ruling in heaven has begun. And so I, I, I thought this quote, this, I, I just, this helps me. Sitting is not sedentary, but sovereignty. When he sits, he's not being sedentary. He's not, he's not twiddling his thumbs. He's ruling as a sovereign. So let me ask you this question. Why does a king sit on his throne? To what? That's the place for ruling. He sits to offer judgments, right? To offer decrees, to declare, to do kingdom business. Why does a judge sit in a courtroom? To give out verdicts, right? Innocent and guilty. Why does Congress, literally it's called Congress sits in session, now, I'll give $1,000 if anyone can tell me what Congress does when they sit in session. Does anybody know? Well, okay, we don't know, but we know what they're supposed to do. When they sit in session, they make what? Laws, 
The point is, when he is sitting there, he is not sedentary. He is actively working. Patrick Schreiner, one of the scholars down here at Midwestern, says this. When he sat down at the right hand of power, it was not for a brief cessation from warfare, but for an age-long conflict with the powers of evil. Sitting is not always a posture of rest. Some of the hardest work of life is done by the monarch seated in his cabinet. Seated with the cabinet. This is work. He is working. Everything, everything that Jesus does in his heavenly ministry is based on the fact that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Everything, everything that happens. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. This is what Daniel predicted and saw in his vision in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Now, this is a cool passage. It's a, Daniel's seeing a vision. And what you're going to see in these two verses is you're seeing the ascension from above. In the book of Acts, we saw the ascension from below, right? Acts 1, 9 through 11, the disciples are there and they're watching him go up and he goes up into clouds, which... If, if not actually were, definitely represented the glory cloud. Well, now here's a picture of the ascension from above. This is what the Father saw at the ascension. Look at what it says in verse Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. He's, he's coming up through the clouds and enters in to the, comes before the, the Ancient of Days and was presented. And to him was given what? Dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Uh, that's the fulfillment the coming fulfillment of the Great Commission. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, this is a prophecy not of Jesus coming down in the book of Revelation. This is a prophecy of Jesus ascending up and sitting at the right hand to receive kingdom authority. And what Daniel predicted, Peter preached, was being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And remember what, G, uh, what Peter said? Let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. So what was he saying to the nation of Israel? Because he was preaching to Jews on the day of Pentecost. He was saying, this one whom you crucified, humiliation, has now been exalted to the right hand of God. He is your Christ, but he throws in and Lord, which means sovereign Lord. He's not just your king, Israel. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's over everything. That's what he's doing. He's conducting kingdom business. Fourth question. How long does Jesus sit in his session? How long is he going to sit there? Well, we've read it several times. Until his enemies are what? Under his feet. So, which is it? Has the kingdom come? Or has it not come? And so now we're at the now, not yet. So that's the answer. The now, not yet kingdom. The king is now enthroned in heaven, but not exalted on earth. So has the kingdom come? No, but the king has come. And he is now enthroned as king. He's ruling as king. But has the kingdom come? No. That's why we still pray, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your what? Your kingdom come. If it had already, we don't pray your kingdom has come. We pray your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that happening right now? Is his will being done on earth? Uh, You haven't watched the news lately then, have you? Or you haven't looked in the mirror lately, right? Or you just haven't interacted with your neighbors lately, okay? God's will is not being done. But we're in a now yet. He's enthroned in heaven, but he's exalted. Psalms 110 told us this. Here, sit at my right hand and wait until your enemies become your footstool. Every enemy has not yet been brought under the feet of Christ. So sit until. He is at the right hand until that happens. Turns to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm telling this is all over the Bible. And if you're reading through your Bible on a regular basis, and hey, this summer, I hope you're doing that. I hope you have a summer reading plan. Okay? And if you are, you're going to see this stuff over and over. And if, you, if, if reading's difficult, then have a listening plan. But notice what Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 says. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, and he must have forgot Psalm 8. <laughs> I guess the writer was like us. <laughs> Someone said somewhere in the Bible, well, it's Psalm 8. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Christ became incarnate. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. So he became incarnate, became lower than the angels as a human being, but now he's been exalted, ascended to the right hand. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not in subject to him. Ephesians 1, all power, all authority, it's all under Christ. But now, here's the key verse. But now we do not yet see all things subjected. So all things are subjected, but we don't see all things subjected. Okay? And then look at verse 9. Notice what he says. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, the human God-man, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, humiliation, crowned with glory and honor, exaltation, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So all things are subjected to him, but we don't see all things subjected. And yet one day, all things will be subjected. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 15. See if I can't confuse you a little more. Don't blame me. It's all in the Bible. You just got to keep reading the Bible, comparing Scripture with Scripture, okay? I didn't come to all this overnight, okay? Decades, decades. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 25. 25 through 28. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He's enthroned, but not all things are under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So as long as there's people dying, the enemy has not been under his feet. For he, that is God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is Jesus' feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So the Father is not under Christ. The Father has put all things under Christ, but the Father is over Christ in his humanity. And then notice this. When all things are subjected to him, 
then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Listen, these are profound truths about Jesus, who is both God and man. As God, Father and Son are equal in the Trinity. As man, Christ is under the Father. The Father is putting all things under the Son. And when all things are finally under the Son, the Son will come before the Father and subject all to the Father so that God is all in all. Folks, history is headed to the glory of God. Get on board now. Amen? Listen, you've got to think through this. Because there's way too many false theologies that say the kingdom is already here. And that there is no future kingdom. But there is a future kingdom. There has to be. Okay? And the king is, has come. And the king is enthroned. But the kingdom has not yet come. So what's going on? Well, I gave you a chart. Because a chart makes everything clear. Well, if not to you, it does to me. You look at the chart. The king has gone away to receive his kingdom, but has not yet come back to rule on the earth. There is a parable, and I gave you the reference. It's a parable of a man who goes away to receive a kingdom. And one day he'll come back as king. And in the meantime, he tells his servants... Here are the resources. Be about my business. Be about my kingdom business. I'm going away. And then at some time, no one knows when, he shows back up and he says, Have you been about my business, Dan? Becky, how did it go? Show me your return on my investment. That's what Jesus has done. He's gone away to receive the kingdom. So if you look at that chart, there's at least, and there's, in the New Testament, there's four phases of the kingdom. The Messiah, his presence, the king is here. The kingdom is near because the king is here. And then he goes up in the ascension and you have the mystery form of the kingdom. His people are being called out. The gospel is going out. The king is gathering his subjects. Come to Christ and be a part of his kingdom. We gather in kingdom outposts. They're called local churches. And we are about the king's business until he comes. Then there comes the manifestation of the kingdom. In Revelation 4 through 20, the kingdom comes. His presence with his people come down to his place. The realm is conquered. And then you find the merging of the kingdom in Revelation 21 through 22. His purpose is finally accomplished. His rule is consummated in a new heavens and the new earth. And all is redeemed for the glory of God. So what is the kingdom? God's presence with God's people in God's place for God's purpose, his glory. And the entire New Testament is laid out. It's right there in that chart. All of history is laid out. And we are right now in the now, not yet. Where he is enthroned, but he has not been exalted. He has gone away to receive his kingdom. And one day he's going to come back to rule. So that leads to the last question. It's this. Now what? And I knew I'd be stretching it. So there it all is. Folks, I'm telling you. I read one guy this week who said, basically said this, every time the ascension is mentioned, it's made, there is practical application made. And I already told you that in two of the toughest things you could ever go through life, persecution as a Christian, Stephen and John saw visions of the ascended Lord. Listen, all this theology, all this doctrine that we're going through, it makes sense of suffering. 
and it enables you to persevere through the hardest of times. But if you don't know it, so I commend you for being here today. I commend you for sitting here, but, and I know it's Sunday morning, we get a little foggy, I understand that. I'm a little foggy, and I'm teaching, okay? I have to get up just like you do, okay? But if you will meditate on these things, if you will study these things, you will see that this is our position. We are seated with Him. You will see that this should be our pursuit. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Seek those things that are above. You've got to, that's why I entitled this whole series, You've got to look up to live out. Okay? Our proclamation of the gospel is authorized with all authority in heaven and earth. And we proclaim what has already been done and has yet to be done. We're not saying, hey, work this out with God. We're saying Christ has come. And he has provided salvation and he is ruling and he is coming again. Get right with him now. And guess what? You get a place of privilege. You get a place of power. You get a place of pleasure. You can be seated with him at the right hand if you are in Christ. Think about this. Our pleas in time of need come to a throne of grace. Isn't it beautiful that when we come to the throne of God, there is seated Jesus as our representative who has went through life like you have gone through life? And it's a throne of grace. And then think about our perseverance. So I end with this. When you went to bed last night, Jesus was at work subduing his enemies. While you slept... He continued to rule over this world. He was still at it when you woke up this morning. And even now as we sit learning this about his heavenly session, he is at work on that throne. And this is an outrageous claim for the ascension. Why? Because when you look at your phone and you look at this world, it's in utter chaos. But Jesus is ruling. So maybe it's time to put down your phone, pick up your Bible. You say, well, my Bible's on my phone. No, sometimes, sometimes you need to get the technology away and just get your face in a book that you can handle, you can touch, you can weep over, you can just, I, there's something different. That's all, that's all I'm going to say on that. Whatever you do, it's time to get into the book. Amen? Look up to the king. To live out his kingdom mission as kingdom citizens in kingdom outposts like our church to fulfill his kingdom purposes. Amen. Father, we thank you. And uh, what, a, what a glorious God you are. And there is Jesus sit, sitting right next to you as our representative, as our substitute, as our sovereign. So, Lord, I pray for each person in this room. I don't know what their week was like. I don't know what this week has in store. But I know you are seated and ruling. Let us look up to live this out. In Jesus' name.